Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. We're continuing this morning. I'm excited to continue our our series of lessons called See the King, where we are looking at Jesus. And the reason that we're doing this is, is, you know, so many people seem to like Jesus. You know, even critics of his day, they couldn't really find anything bad to say about him. They had to make stuff up. They had to lie about him. And, and even critics today of the Jesus movement, of the church, that kind of thing, they seem to like Jesus. Their message seems to be, we, we like Jesus, but we're just not sure about all the stuff you know, that's attached to being one of his followers. And so we're kind of making an effort to get behind all of the noise and maybe, you know, some of the baggage that over 2,000 years was, you know, inevitable when it comes to uh, following a a historical figure and and someone that, you know, is alive in spirit today. And so we're making that effort to kind of see behind the story, get a a fresh perspective on the story, find new ways of seeing Jesus and the church and his movement, and, and maybe and hopefully finding new ways of showing Jesus, presenting Jesus through ourselves to the world around us. And one thing we've been saying throughout the series is that Jesus came to bring something brand spanking new into the world. It was something that had been promised for a long time. It was even to the ancient people, you know, 2,000 years removed from us. It was an ancient promise even to them. They had heard about it, but they had just, they had never seen it before. And so when Jesus showed up, everything that he was saying and everything that he was doing and the way that he would talk about God, you know, they had just had an idea of God, like this deity that was somewhere above them. And Jesus started calling him, you know, the father and talking about the father and like, well, who's the father? Jesus was trying to tell them, well, this is the way that you should think about God. Just brand new ways of of looking at all of that. And he was redefining religion. Religion had kind of devolved into this system of guilt management, right? And and that maybe happens to us as well. And he was redefining love and relationships. And then as we're going to look at today, he was redefining what it is to have power. He was redefining what it should look like for someone to exercise influence and authority that they have. So Jesus was on the scene and he's, he's launching his revolution and, and he was challenging the Jewish people's national aspirations. They were just really bought in, understandably so, really bought in to their national identity, their collective identity. And since they were God's special and chosen people, well, that meant God loved them maybe a little more than everybody else around them. And and they had kind of lost the reason that he had made them a nation to begin with. And, you know, if they could maybe have one slogan to, to sum up the thinking of their day when Jesus showed up, if there was one slogan that Israel kind of had ringing in their ears, it was make Israel great again. Like that sound familiar to anybody. And, and Jesus steps in and he kind of challenges that. He's kind of speaking against that a little bit. And then he steps into their temple system and starts challenging their religious assumptions. You know, the temple is a way that that we kind of, you know, we do bad things. And so then we go to the temple so that we can do some, you know, things and then not feel so bad about the bad things that we've done before. And, And maybe that's even like your concept of religion, right? Like that kind of seeps into all our thinking. Well, I live throughout the week and yeah, I do some stuff and it makes me feel kind of guilty. So I need to go to church so that way I don't feel guilty anymore. I did some good to balance the bad, right? And then after a while, what happens when you do the same thing over and over again? After a while, you just don't feel as guilty, right? 
And so guilt is a terrible reason to go to church or to continue going to church. There's no real inspiration there to be any different than you were before. There's no real inspiration in that kind of way of seeing church to be the kind of person that doesn't do those things that make us feel guilty and condemn us. And so Jesus was challenging their religious kind of assumptions, and I think he challenges our religious assumptions a little bit too, if we'll let him. And, and he gives us a better way a brighter way forward. And so he, he, you know, he's poking at them a little bit, the, the people of his day. He's kind of making them uncomfortable and, and kind of you know, putting down their, their national aspirations and giving them a new collective identity and a new movement. But people are listening to Jesus because he's doing some amazing things. I mean, he's walking on water. Blind people that can't see, suddenly they, they can see and touching deaf ears and deaf people can hear again. And, and, he, and you can imagine in those days, I mean, there was no like universal healthcare. Medicine was very primitive. And, you know, they like if you had a cut that wouldn't stop bleeding or an issue of blood, like they thought you had too much blood in your body. That must be what's going on. The blood's trying to get out because you got too much. So let's cut you a bunch of times more. Let's help that all get, I mean, you can just imagine, you can see why, it kind of makes sense actually, doesn't it? But you know, you can see why people thought that way, why people did that. And there was all kinds of ailments, bones that hadn't healed properly, all that kind of, and Jesus showed up and he starts healing people and he starts making people's lives different and better. And then he starts feeding people. And that's when the crowds really got behind him. Can I hear in a man on Sunday morning? Yes. Feed me a breakfast burrito from Adalberto's and I will follow you anywhere. And so Jesus' fame, it's growing and, and Jesus starts inviting more and more people. Hey, follow me, follow me, follow me. So people become followers of Jesus. And, and the religious word, the church word, the Bible word for this is disciples. That's not really a word that we use much around here anymore or in our society rather, but these disciples began to believe in Jesus they began to lean on Jesus and who he said he was and, and what he told them and taught them about life. And it wasn't like belief, like, you know, we kind of think of the word believe today, like you use your mind to accept facts or reject, you know, theories. And I, it wasn't a mental belief at all. It was more like a trust fall kind of belief. Anybody know what a trust fall is? Yeah? No? So come on, y'all are asleep this morning. I'm going to help you wake up. Anybody know what a trust fall is? Yeah, okay, James Hightower is gonna have you come up here and demonstrate a trust fall, but I guess we don't have to do that this morning. That's what they're believing in Jesus looked like. We're leaving homes, you know, they weren't abandoning their homes, but they were going like on mission trips and we're leaving our businesses. We're leaving the safety of, of revenue and, and our social class system and our status and, and we're going to follow you because we believe in you. And frankly, for them, it was all a little dangerous. You know, what Jesus started was a lot more like a political movement. He was ushering in the kingdom of God, even though they were under the oppression of the kingdom of Rome. And Jesus is talking about, no, you need, to, you need to get into God's kingdom. So it was a lot more like a political movement than it was maybe like a religious system or a church like we think of church. And so the early disciples were heavily invested in Jesus eventually being crowned the king. Because you can't back the losing side. 
You have to back the winning side or else it just doesn't even make sense for you to join the revolution. And if he fails, yes, they look foolish and maybe that's a level of of trust and, and belief that you and I can relate on, right? There's some things we do, some ways we behave, some values that we hold as Jesus followers and maybe it seems silly to the world around us. For them, yeah, they might've felt silly if he failed, but it was also, there was also a good chance that if he failed and he winded up, he wound up crucified, that they would come after them next because they were the guys closest to the guys. And so that was a very real possibility for them, especially at that time. There were thousands, maybe tens of thousands of young Jewish men who were crucified by the Romans around that time. And then Jesus, instead of calming their worries, he makes it worse. He starts to talk to them and it kind of sounds like he's saying that that's exactly what was going to happen to them. And Peter was there. He was one of his closest disciples. And later on, Peter told Mark and Mark wrote it down for us. And in the new part of your Bible, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is, is the one that kind of recorded what Peter said. Mark eight thirty four. Then he, being Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Well, Jesus, that's crazy. I don't own a cross. Right? And for us in 2018, the cross has kind of been, you know, cleaned up a little bit. The cross is a good symbol. People wear crosses around their necks and on their wrists and put them on their cars and hang them on their wall. The cross is something like beautiful to us on this side of Calvary. But for them, it was a tool and a method of execution. It would be like Jesus telling us, whoever wants to follow me must take up their electric chair and follow me. Whoever wants to follow me must put a hangman's noose around your neck, you know, with those, the, the big knot thing, and just walk around with a noose around your neck. Jesus, that's crazy. That's a little bit out there. You know, calm down. People are going to start hearing you, and they're going to start leaving the movement. And again, especially during this time where so many people were crucified for being part of political revolutions. But Jesus wasn't even done saying these out there kind of things. In verse 35, he says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Well, Jesus, of course we want to save our lives. Nobody wants to die, but what in the world? I I saved my life by losing it for you, by, by losing it for the sake of some kind of good news announcement. That's what this word gospel meant. We're not even sure what that good news is yet. We're not sure exactly what you mean, Jesus, but it sounds pretty much like you're expecting us to to carry around with ourselves a way to be put to death and then to be ready to die on that thing for the sake of you and your movement at a moment's notice. Is that what you're saying? And Jesus is like, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And that was his message to his followers. And so it kind of, it leaves them with a question and honestly, like outside, you know, the, the, outside the normal ways that we think about Jesus in church, it leaves us with a couple of questions. What exactly is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about a literal noose or a literal cross? What exactly is he talking about? And then once we figure that out, how exactly is that going to bring about change in our world? How does dying for Jesus in this way bring change to our world. So 
That's what we're going to look at today. And I, I, you know, I have this perfect segue. As a, as a speaker, I, I love perfect segues. It's just beautiful when you can make two subjects line up, you know, because they have so much in common. And so going from this idea of dying, I want to segue into this related topic that I was 23, 23 years old when Chelsea asked me to marry her. It's just a perfect segue. I mean, marriage and death are so closely related. At least the first year of our marriage seemed to be very closely related to death. Before we got married, I was pretty sure, I was, I, I, you know, pretty sure, about as sure as you could be, that Chelsea was going to make me really, really happy. Chelsea was what I needed. Chelsea fit me so well. She was what I wanted. She had, you know, the va-va-voom. Let me just... It's about as safe as a church word as I can think. She was kind. And that's really what this Christian boy was drawn to, her kindness. You know, just loved her, her kind. So we ran off and we got married. We ran off and got married. We only, a date, we only dated officially for like about a month. And then we ran off and got married. And it only took us about three months to become two of the most miserable people on God's green earth. That first year of marriage was horrible. In fact, I don't know if you guys know this or not. Do you guys know I wrote a book? Yeah, I wrote a book. Here it is. Making an Unhappy Marriage, Three Easy Steps to Misery. <laughs> I am an expert in this based off my first year of marriage. If any of you need help making a miserable marriage, come talk to me and I will hook you up. First, it was like the, the sleeping situation. I was, you know, living solo, obviously, before that, used to sleep with the clock light on. You know, the whole room was green, which means at 23, I had a night light, but that's, you know, something to the side. I used to sleep with the radio on. There was music going, right? And, and, and then, you know, I, I had a queen-size bed all to myself, and I can't stand being hot when I go to sleep, so I used to keep the room cool. When we got married, Chelsea wanted it pitch black in the room. Like she used to put something over the clock face. Am I telling the truth, Chell? She used to put something over the clock face so there would be no light in the room. And there could be no noise whatsoever, not even a fan. I can remember nights laying in bed, staring up at the pitch black. And, and you're like, you swallow and it's loud. Like, you know, you wrestle the sheets and it sounds like someone's banging pots and pans when you're trying to turn over. And then there was nowhere to turn over to. Somebody else was in the bed and I wasn't always this slim, you know. So just, you know, the, no, no fan, no AC noise. It was hot. It was quiet. We were miserable. And then you put two very different personalities inside a tiny apartment and take away our sleep. Well, we were both pretty sure that we were not going to last for one year. And I had dreamed for such a long time, you guys. I'm talking for such a long time I had been dreaming. That entire month of our engagement, I had been dreaming about our perfect life and how happy she was going to make me. I dreamed of us playing video games till two in the morning. 
She doesn't even like video games. And after 9.30, she grows fangs. It's just, you know, I dreamed of home-cooked meals where we'd laugh together in the kitchen, you know, swat each other with cup towels while Michael Buble is playing in the back. There was no music in the house. And one day she made me a tuna casserole that just, ab- I, I spit it out. <laughs> it was that bad. And she's way better now. Just, you are, babe. I love you. I love you. Everybody doesn't know whether to laugh or not on that one, right? Chelsea's usually with the kids. She's in here today, so I wasn't counting on that when I put all this together. So it was miserable. Now, here's the thing. Things had to change. Something had to change. So without expecting anything in return from her, in a gesture of goodwill and generosity on my part, I began giving her advice on how she could do things better. (laughs) And that went about as you would expect. (laughs) But I just could not believe I had ruined my whole life by getting married and she felt the exact same way about me. And somehow, babe, we did it. We limped over that one-year marker. We ate that nasty frozen, yes. We're 18 and a half years now and going strong. Mm, mm. You still got va-va-voom, baby, I tell you. We limped past that one-year marker. We ate that nasty frozen cake. That that is such a horrible idea. Let's take marginally good cake and freeze it for a year and then eat it. You know, that's just like, no, let's go buy a new cake. But slowly things started to get better, and I'm happy or just, you know, amazed to say it actually started with a $12 fan from Walmart. Started to turn our... Jesus didn't save our marriage. Frigid air did. Hallelujah. It's just... (laughs) But, you know, I don't know when I was finally ready to admit this. It certainly wasn't, wasn't then. It was a lot closer to now, actually. But I had come into marriage with such a self-centered attitude. I really believed, looking back, I really believed that if she would just listen to me on how to make things happy at home, we would both be happy that whatever made me happy would automatically somehow make both of us happy. And I, it's painful to, you know, I'm kind of joking around, but really, like, I'm kind of embarrassed. It's, it's painful to admit how little time I actually spent thinking about how to make her happy. My focus was completely on myself. And back then, my dad, I was a pastor's kid. My dad was my pastor, you know, I'd go to my pastor. And my whole life, every time I went to him as my pastor, you know, he'd tell me, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, you know. And so, yeah, the whole, the whole life, look to Jesus, always look to Jesus. So I started looking at the life of Jesus, like, how can I find, how? and dad was right. The answer was in the life of Jesus. Jesus had the key to happiness the whole time. And it was this, Jesus was single, Dad was right. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. It was too late for that, but but Jesus really does have the key to happiness. Jesus really does. If you will believe in him, not a mental thing, but like a trustful thing, lean on him with your whole life in every area of your life. I'm telling you, Jesus promises and he comes through on what he promises that he can make your life full and fulfilled. 
He can even make you happy. God wants you to be happy. And there's some, you know, there's a lot of debate in the church world over that statement. You know, does God want you to be happy or does God want you to be obedient? Or you hear sometimes people say, God doesn't want you happy, God wants you holy. The real tragedy of statements like that is that they assume that if you are obedient to God that you will not end up happier. That is a lie. The life of holiness is the most joyful and beautiful thing in this world. If you obey, you will be happy. He wants you to enjoy life. He wants you to love life and love living. And he wants you to be full and fulfilled. And life does not have to be shallow and and stuck in a rut and pointless. Life can transcend yourself. It can go beyond yourself and be, be huge and reach beyond your imaginations. That's why Jesus promised in John 10 and 10, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Jesus will fill up your life with meaning and purpose, freedom and peace. Life in the full is not something that will make you unhappy. But as you might guess, it does not come in the typical ways. It does not come through our natural and ideas and values and the typical pursuits and the normal value system of our society and people in general and the entertain, entertainment news network. You're not going to find it that way. This, this past week, I was, you know, torn up, I, I, heartbroken. I don't, I don't know them, follow them, anything. I was, I was heartbroken over the news of the, the two suicides of Kate Spade and, and Anthony Bourdain. Not that they're, you know, more heartbreaking than a common person committing suicide, but simply that, you know, they're, re- they're reported due to their celebrity. But even from these tragedies, they speak to us. The, the suicide of Robin Williams, they speak to us. They speak to us that what society normally chases as markers of success and, and having a full life, that might, not what, that might not be what it means to have life to the full. These people were at the top of the success ladder. Famous and wealthy and connected and everything else. And yet they became so full of despair and it just, it boggles my mind and it breaks my heart. And that's part of the reason why I said what I said just a little while ago. I want more people to know about the goodness of my Jesus. That he can forgive all of your embarrassment and your shame. He can give you a brand new beginning and launch you into a life you will never find. Never find chasing these typical pursuits that our world just sets up as what is best. And Jesus knew this. Jesus preached these things. He was counterculture the whole time, and he was trying to teach his disciples this. And, you know, you think about it. He only had three short years. And some, you know, historians and and scholars think that it might have been as little as 18 months. Three short years to 18 months is all the time he had to leave them in charge of a movement that was going to change the course of history. It's all the time he had with him. It's amazing to me that Jesus, three years of public ministry and 2,000 years later, there are buildings and movements and congregations, two and a half billion people today claim that Jesus has personally touched them even though he died. Something is going on. And all he had was 18 months to three years to teach his followers how to be in charge of that movement, the movement that promised an eternal life. And when I say eternal life, I'm not just talking about what happens to you after you die. I'm talking about eternal life. 
Eternal means there are no bounds of time, which means it can start now and give you the quality of life and the kind of life that is worth going on after you die. Full life, an eternal kind of life. So he's determined to show them the real meaning behind what he's doing, the real power behind his movement because they're all waiting for him to become the normal kind of king in the normal ways of becoming king, which means an armed revolution, fighting and warfare and swords. And Jesus is telling them, here is what I'm doing and here's how it's going to work. But it is not the normal kind of kingdom and the normal kind of kingship and it's not the normal kinds of ways to get there. And so he gives them conversations like the one we started with. Take up your cross and follow me. Lose your life for the sake of my message, for the sake of me, for the sake of my good news announcement. And a little while later, they're on their way to Jerusalem. And sure enough, it's going to be the last time. And to them, it seems like it's going to be the last time. And Jesus is marching differently, walking differently. He's talking differently, you know, different interactions with people. In Mark chapter 10, verse 32, Mark and Peter take us back there again. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. There was something different about Jesus this time. He was a little more somber, a little more locked in and focused. And he had just had a a conversation with a rich man where he told the rich man, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And, and, and you know, the, the disciples are a little confused, right? The guy goes away sad. He doesn't end up following Jesus. And the disciples are confused. If we're going to start a revolution, we're going to need some money. And you just sent away a rich guy. You know, what in the world? And then Jesus, he doesn't even apologize. He just turns to them and he says, it's hard for rich people to be a part of what God is trying to do. And then he just keeps on walking. And so they're astonished at what he's saying. And those that haven't yet committed to being disciples, the other ones that are just kind of following, checking him out, they're starting to get a little bit afraid that maybe this isn't going to be the revolution that we thought it was going to be. What an astonishing statement. And then Jesus makes it worse. Verse 32, again, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen to them. The son of man will be delivered over. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. But then three days later, guys, he will rise. And they looked at him and they're a little confused and a little astonished and a little worried. And Jesus, you know, you're talking about yourself in the third person again. You know, every time you do that, things get weird. But why all the the gloom and the doom? And we know you just sent away the rich guy to make a point about, you know, the kingdom and the kind of people in the kingdom. We get it. We don't really like rich people either, you know. But Jesus, we're having a hard time believing all the bad stuff because Jesus, you're more popular than ever. There are thousands upon thousands of people coming to find you every time you have a congregation, every time you have a service, so to speak. So Jesus, we don't really get what you are trying to say. And we know this by what comes next. The disciples are thinking about the normal kinds of power. They're thinking about the normal kinds of kingdoms that leads to the normal kinds of abuses, It's the normal kind of a king with the normal economy of a kingdom. But Jesus is going to be that king and Herod is going to be dealt with and the Romans are going to be kicked out of Israel and judged for their oppression and everybody's going to be doing what Jesus says finally because that's what happens when someone becomes king. And Jesus, if you're going to be that king, you're going to need some helpers. 
Maybe a right-hand man, maybe a left-hand man. Just like any president when he comes into power brings in his own cabinet. So James and John, two brothers who were Jesus, part of Jesus' closest disciples and followers, they figure they're going to beat the other guys to the punch. Then James and John, sons of Zebedee, everybody say Zebedee. It's a fun word to say. Came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. This is such a bad look for James and John. I mean, Jesus has just got done saying, hey guys, they're gonna spit on me and mock me and kill me. And now you're coming to me and you're asking me for a favor. And then you're phrasing your asking like a seven-year-old, right? Like, you know, we want you to do us a favor, but I'm not gonna tell you what it is until you say yes first. No, say yes first. Say, and Jesus doesn't fall into the trap. What do you want, guys? What is it that you guys are asking me for? And they replied in verse 37, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other one at your left in your glory. Do you notice that part? In your glory? Like when all the hard part's done, like when everything's good, after the nun, you know, spitting on you and flogging you and whipping you and then, you know, the killing you thing. We're not really sure if that's really killing. Well, you know, after all that stuff, then we want to be your right-hand man and left-hand man. During the hard part, maybe we'll just stay towards the back, you know, take a, keep it on the deck. We'll be your spies or something. But in your glory, we want to be on your right and on your left. And Jesus realizes, he understands. They don't understand what power looks like from heaven's perspective. They don't understand the kind of fullness to life that I am trying to bring. They think that fullness to life comes from the normal pursuits in life, power and fame and wealth, position and rank and authority. They don't get it. Ellos no lo entienden. Jesus spoke Spanish as well as Aramaic. Verse 38, he tells him, you guys don't know well, you're asking. And then he goes on and he asks him these strange questions. Are you able to drink from the cup that I'm gonna drink from? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I have to be baptized? And I think there's a sense where they think, they th- you know, they, they know what he's talking about. They think they know what he's saying. And okay, there's gonna be a battle probably. That's how, you know, kingdoms rise. That's how revolutions happen. So yeah, that's gonna be tough. You're gonna have to send some people to die. Maybe that's the cup. Yeah, we can drink that. I can send somebody else to die. That's the baptism of of maybe stress and and difficult decision-making. Sure, Jesus, we can do what you're going to have to do. And and on this side of Calvary, here's the thing. We're on this side of Calvary. We're on this side of the cross. We know what's about to happen to Jesus. He's about to walk into Jerusalem, get arrested, and then hung on a cross. We know what's about to happen. They did not know. Everything that we have from history tells us that he had, they had no clue. Even though he had talked about dying and suffering, they didn't believe it. Their scriptures, you know, mention the suffering and the Messiah together, but all of the historical writings and even their actions tell us they did not really expect Jesus to be put to death. They fully expected Jesus to win in the normal sense of winning. The early disciples had no context for thinking Jesus would win by giving up his life. We were on the other side of the cross, but they did not think that. And to be fair, why would they? 
Come on, even on this side of the cross, if we're honest, we're on this side of Calvary and, and most of us here are Jesus followers and almost everybody here I'm sure has heard that Jesus died on a cross. We still have a hard time processing the cross as Jesus' victory. We still have a hard time understanding how this was a display of the greatest kind of power. It doesn't really look that way. Mostly people think that the cross is where Jesus lost. But somehow when he lost, God took that and used it to forgive people's sins, you know. But the real victory happened at Easter. That's when Jesus triumphed. That's what we think. And then we get to Colossians chapter 2 and we read things like this. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. The cross, his death, that thing that he called us to experience with him. The cross is where he won. The cross was how Jesus won. How does that work? What are you talking about that you have to go to Jerusalem and die? An Easter morning would simply be the proof that you had indeed won on the cross. And if the cross, if the cross was, was the means by which the power that defeated the enemy of our soul was unleashed, then what kind of power was it on the cross? What kind of power was unleashed on the cross? What actually happened on the cross to put the enemy in checkmate? But they couldn't see it. They couldn't wrap their brains around it. It was too foreign, too out of the box. And honestly, sometimes I think that we forget that too. And that's what Jesus was telling them. You guys don't understand what you are asking when you are asking to be with me in my glory. And then he goes on in verse 40 and he says, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When I'm in my glory, as you guys call it, when I defeat the enemy, in that moment when, when everyone will see my power, will see my victory. In other words, when I'm on the cross, the places at my right and at my left, they're already assigned to someone else. And we know that when Jesus was on the cross, to his right and to his left were revolutionaries and malefactors. We're at the point, when you read Mark through it, the point when Jesus finally is hanging there and the sign is placed over his head, King of the Jews, the moment he is crowned as the King of the Jews on his right and on his left are not James and John, but two revolutionaries. What a strange little conversation. What a hard little conversation to adapt and adopt into our lives. What a hard thing to process as Jesus is on his way to lay down his life for others. But again, what we see Jesus doing over and over again is telling them that what I am about to do fulfills all of the promises that you have had for centuries that somehow Jesus is saying that his death would be the victory of God over the greatest enemy of our souls. And it only makes sense if what we normally see as losing was actually the way for him to win. It only makes sense if what we would normally think of as weakness turned out to be the greatest demonstration of God's power. 
It only makes sense if what we would normally consider humiliating and foolish turns out to be, in fact, the wisdom of God and the power of God on display. And hasn't it, in fact, won our hearts? Come on, somebody. Isn't the cross the most beautiful symbol in all the world? Isn't the cross the symbol of your hope and your forgiveness and your brand new beginnings? He turned it all around. He turned it all around. So there's this teaching moment with Jesus, and he's just said these hard things to them, and they don't really understand what's going on. And what he says next is a theme that's repeated over and over throughout his ministry. You find it here in Mark 10. You find it all through Jesus' time on earth. But sadly, it, it gets lost by Jesus' followers sometimes. It gets lost by the church sometimes. We fall into the trap of, of jockeying for position and jockeying for moral authority over other people. And, and you know, we want to exercise our voice over their voice. We want to shout louder. We want to scream louder. We want to flex our muscle against their muscle and vote our ways against their ways. And what Jesus says next is a standing rebuke for all of our shouting and all of our condemnation on the other side. Jesus in verse 42, he says, you know, talking to these Jewish men who are under Roman oppression, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Anybody ever had a boss you don't like? Keep your hand down. And they're high officials. Exercise authority of them. You guys know how this works. Rome is walking your streets. Rome has killed your uncles and your fathers and your cousins. Rome is influencing your government now. Rome is collecting the imperial tax from you now. And there's not a thing you can do about it. It's all the little people at the bottom and Caesar at the top. And you guys hate it. In fact, that's why all of them had joined his movement they were wanting to change. They were wanting to kick Rome out, Rome out. They were ready to exchange one normal use of power for another normal and expected use of power. And Jesus says, you know how it is in normal ways. And then he says this, not so with you. Come on, turn and tell somebody, not so with you. This is not how my kind of power works. This is the way of the world, but I came to bring you life from another world. This is how power normally gets used, but I came to show you power being used in a completely brand new way. And if you want to be seated next to me in my glory, this is what it will look like. This is what it will be like when I am finally crowned the king of everything. And so he says, he tells him, instead... Whoever, among, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Instead of lording it over people, instead of exercising your authority over people and telling people what to do and when to do it and telling, you know, taking a seat at the top, in my kingdom, in my glory, whoever wants to be great must become the servant. And then he goes on and he says, and whoever wants to be first must be slave. Whoever wants to be first has to get down on hands and knees in front of the other person and do the dirty work and do the hard work and do the thankless work because my kingdom runs on a totally different kind of power. And not only will you be the slave of people you like or people who look like you, 
people who talk like you or vote like you or earn like you or have, have the same values as you, whoever wants to be first in my kingdom must be the slave of all, of all, of all. And then Peter and Mark who are writing this down and they're remembering Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. They're looking back by the time they had written this at decades later, 20 to 30 years later, looking back over decades of teaching the hardcore holy Jewish people to embrace pagans and to embrace Gentiles and to live with and love unholy people as they remember these last conversations with Jesus. The, 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 the integrity or, or intensity rather and, and the weight of the conversations, the nervousness and anxiety and wonder that they offer, the strangeness of Jesus' words, the conversations before the cross for which they had no context at all for understanding and interpreting what he was saying, remembering the horror when Jesus finally was crucified, when they finally did see him bloody and broken and nailed to a cross, when they finally did see someone put the sign over his head that called him the king of the Jews and they remembered how it seemed in those moments like Jesus had in fact lost. Mark and Peter, they, re they remember how Jesus summed up the whole reason that he had come and lived and died and rose again and started this brand new Jesus movement. Verse 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give my life, to give my power, to give my authority and my glory and my honor and everything that I am, to sacrifice it on behalf of those who don't even know me yet to sacrifice it and lay it down even for those who are nailing me to this cross. And when Jesus was hung on the cross, he even prayed a prayer, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. And Peter would tell us and Mark would tell us this is what it looked like when God became king. It had been promised to us for so long we were waiting for it for centuries. He was, he was going to set us free and he was going to break chains of oppression and restore sight to the blind. And oh, did he ever open our eyes on the cross. He was going to set us free from the things that had bound us up and addictions and loves that had so turned us and twisted us where we only lived for ourselves and only thought of ourselves and only reached and grabbed for whatever we could get for ourselves. He opened our minds and he opened our hearts to a brand new way of being human, a brand new way of being life, uh, alive that we would just like him learn to give up ourselves, to lay down ourselves, to put aside our ambitions, to put aside our dreams and our desires, to live for you and to you and for you and for you, that I would give myself to make your life better, to make you greater, to give you value and worth. Do you realize that's what he did on the cross? That he gave us a value and a worth that we could never find or gain on our own, we'll never be good enough. We'll never do enough good deeds 
but in our brokenness and at our lowest. And when we were most embarrassed and shameful of the things in our lives, he knew all along who we were. He knows all along who you are. He knows whether you've done the worst thing you'll ever do in your life yet or whether that's still to come. And still, he speaks to you and says, I give my life for you. I lay me down to lift you up. Come on, all over this room. Can you give them thanks and praise this morning? Come on. See, the cross is what it looks like when divine power steps into a broken world and meets broken people. The cross is what it looks like when God's power find sinners who are bound by addictions and habits and attitudes and behaviors that, come on, if we're honest this morning, that have enslaved us. Things that we have done to hurt ourselves, to hurt the people in our lives that we say we love the most. God stepped into our world in his son, Jesus Christ, and gave himself up, leveraged his power to give us what we could not give ourselves. He took his royalty and his purity and he spread it over us like a robe over our spiritual poverty, like a covering over our relational poverty. On the cross, he gives us worth we could never earn on our own. He paid the ransom to free us from the haunting of who we used to be. This would be the power. This would be the means, the way that God would become king. This would be the power of God and the love of God leveraged for the benefit of the weak, the broken, and the sinful. The leverage, the love, and the power of God leveraged for you, for you, you, and you, every single one of us, not at our best, but at our lowest and at our worst. And on the cross, Jesus laid down his life and showed us his glory, the power of love, the power of his love. But you know, before he even got to the cross, just a few hours maybe after this conversation, at their last meal together in an upstairs room, Jesus knelt before his 12 disciples. He, he put himself into the uniform of a servant and he began to wash their nasty, gnarled feet. There were no pedicures back then. They didn't have arch supports. There was none of those scrubbing things that they used to get all the rough skin off. Or those weird things where they put your feet in a bath and the fish nibble? I don't know what that's about, but their feet stunk. They didn't bathe very often. No toenail clippers. They had to bite their nails off. Just kidding. But Jesus would dress himself in the uniform of a servant in that last night together, their last meal together. Jesus dressed himself like a servant. And Jesus knelt before each and every one of them and he began to wash their feet. Think about it. Three years to leave them with an idea of how to run his movement. It's the last night. He's about to leave. This is the thing that they're gonna remember forever. And he kneels in front of them and he begins to wash their nasty, gnarled feet like a servant, like a slave. And when he comes to Peter, Peter who just... He says the most outlandish things sometimes, but a few times, man, when Peter nails it, he hits it beautifully. And Peter, as Jesus comes to him, Jesus looks at him and says, not so, never will you wash my feet, Jesus. 
And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, if I don't wash your feet, then you can't be part of my kingdom. You can't be part of what I'm trying to do. And Peter's, he's broken by the demonstration of love. He's broken by Jesus, the king of everything, trying to wash his feet. And what Jesus is saying, that this is actually a way that you become part of what it, what it looks like to be in power and to be in authority. And Peter looks back at Jesus and he says, well, Lord, if that's the way that it has to be, like I have to let you wash my feet to be a part of what you are and what you're doing, then Jesus, not just my feet, but my head, my hands, wash me, wash me, wash me, wash me. And today Jesus is still washing those that want to be part of his movement. Jesus is here this morning. You can feel him. We've witnessed him. We've worshiped him. We felt his presence and his closeness. I feel him right now. I hope you do too. But he's still come to wash, to cleanse. He has still come to kneel before each and every one of us and let us know that he came to serve and not to be served. He came to die so that we might find a brand new way to live. He came to shed his blood and with his blood to pay the penalty for all of our injustices, all of our past and all of our wrongs. And he's washed them away and he forgives and he cleanses. And he offers us baptism in water. And in that we symbol that we lay our old life to rest and we come out, that whole trustful thing, that showing that we believe in Jesus and we arise to new life, the Bible says. That he fills us with his Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit that awakens new desires and, and new values in us. But it all started when the king of everything came and gave up his life as a ransom for you and for me, for you and for me. Thank you, Jesus. Can we all stand this morning in the room? The resurrected king, the one that's full of glory and power, the one that shines in history so brightly, the one that this world hasn't been, away, and hasn't been able to look away from for 2,000 years now. For 2,000 years, our world is tried desperately at times to, to, to obscure Jesus and to bury him and bury his church, but I can't get away from him. I can't get away from the moment of his glory. I can't get away from the moment of his power being on full display when he offered himself as a covering for all of our shame. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.